Welcome to the Illuminate Faith Podcast, episode number six. My name's Dave Exley. And I'm Isaac Mundy. Doug Peck here. And we are glad that you're here. We're recording live this morning from the You Made It Cafe, directly across from the London Via Rail Station and another uh, iconic landmark, the Sammy Suvlaki Stand. We're right across from there as well at this wonderful cafe. And Isaac, tell us a little bit about the cafe here. Yeah, well, the U in You Made It Cafe actually stands Y-O-U, Youth Opportunities Unlimited. And they do some great work here in the city in terms of offering employment opportunities for young people who maybe don't have all of the same opportunities that uh, that other folks would have in our community. And they get to come and work here in the cafe and develop job skills that will help them out in the wider world in the job market. I know that they also have a workshop where they make all kinds of really cool like woodworking products. And they have some wicked good barbecue sauce that has just blown my mind. So uh, I highly recommend the BBQ sauce. Before we get into uh, today's podcast, and there's a conversation that I had just recently with Rob Crosby Shearer, who is a part of the Emmaus community, which is a new monastic or neo-monastic community out in Victoria, BC. Some incredible, incredible uh, insights that he has to share with us uh, about uh, that that life and, and their rhythm of life, their practices and things. Uh, and, uh, and so it's a lengthier episode than we normally have here, but he shared so many uh, rich ideas and, and thoughts with us that I thought we'd uh, uh, have a, an extended uh, conversation uh, included in this week's uh, episode. Before we get to that, I want to encourage everyone, uh, this uh, this July, uh, the end of July, is the Skylight Festival, which I know we've talked about. Our first episode, we had a conversation uh, 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 with Lauren and Sarah about uh, who are a part of the Skylight uh, Fest- Festival visioning team there. July 29th to 31st in Paris, Ontario, and uh, come and enjoy. Don't come just because the Illuminate Faith podcast uh, folks will be there doing some live recording, but also come because some incredible people like John Bell, uh, Rahil Raza, Adrian Jacobs, Diana Butler-Bass, and, and many, many other incredible people are going to be there. So uh, we encourage you to go on to skylightfestival.ca and sign up for that because it's just going to be uh, just an excellent, excellent opportunity to uh, connect with people from across the country uh, and listen to some incredible minds uh, connected both to the church uh, and uh, and to the wider world. So I think uh, without further ado, we'll get into the conversation uh, with Rob, and then we'll come back with, uh, with a uh, further conversation with the three of you guys. So I'm here with Rob Crosby Shearer, who is a leader in the Emmaus community out in Victoria, BC. Great to, to have you here with us, Rob. Thanks for doing this. Hey, Dave. Thanks for having me. It's great to, great to be chatting with you today. Excellent. So what can you tell me about the Emmaus community? Well, uh, that's, a, that's a great question. The, the Emmaus community is um, what we call a new monastic or neo-monastic community, um, which is kind of a buzzword, um, which, which may or may not be helpful, depending on what people know about monasticism or about new monasticism. But to, to really try and boil it down, we are a community that um, has what we call a rhythm of life or a rule of life, and with that, um, we try and live a little more intentionally than um, perhaps we other might, otherwise might. In our particular rule of life, we take um, we undergo a bit of a process for a period of time. And then we take promises of um, prayer, presence, and simplicity. Uh, if you know if you know about traditional monasticism, they would take there, there's a few different formulations, but the most common one is poverty, chastity, and obedience. Um, but because we're people coming from pretty diverse places, we're single people, people in families, couples, partnered people. You know, all we're kind of across the spectrum in terms of of um, of, of life. Um, poverty, chastity, and obedience, we wanted to find a way to redefine those for the context we live in. So that um, that is sort of the foundation of the community, which is what might make us different than a congregation, um, although certainly some congregations are looking at having rules of life as well, or rhythms of life that they would hold together. Um, but we, that, that really, I think, is what distinguishes us. And so... The way that looks on the ground um, is that uh, in terms of prayer, we pray together every weekday, and we also have um, a Sunday 
worship Sunday afternoon worship um, that we that many of us do together. We um, so that that tends to be the prayer piece. Um, presence. We've tried to make a commitment to our uh, neighborhood, to our to a local place, and so most of our members, uh, some live in the same in the same house together, but others live within a you know within a, a 15 minute walk of of the neighborhood that we live in, so that we try and be localized and have a real commitment to place. Uh, and simplicity is, in some ways, perhaps the most challenging one of all. In that, in a life where things are really complex and cluttered, both in terms of material and I think even uh, emotional and spiritual space, we we really try and hold each other accountable to simplifying a little bit. It's in our rule of life, for example, to take a Sabbath, to go on retreats. And to even look at our consumption and our um, just that you know how much stuff we have, and is there a way to live more simply? And so that you know th- those three emphases aren't aren't necessarily you know divinely inspired, but as we kind of prayed through forming this community and started to kind of look at what that might mean, those were the three that we felt called to emphasize uh, in this incarnation or in this way of being community here in Victoria. That's great. Thanks. I, I, I'm wondering, uh, obviously, uh, you know, the, the community, um, if you can give us a little bit of a history about uh, how things uh, got started, uh, how long you've been down uh, the road, and, uh, um, you know, curious about that as far as the, the history of, uh, of the community. Yeah, you know, um, I, uh, for myself, I've, I've felt, since I was probably in my late teens, I've felt this call to living um living the way that I think we're striving to live a little more simply and a little more uh recognizing the interconnection with each other and with the earth and rooting that in a prayerful life and uh you know my own background I, I spent five years in a Catholic worker community um in uh in Toronto um started a community there as well, another intentional community which is still going. Um, and when we came to Victoria about four years ago, uh, Megan and I, we we were kind of like, should we should we do this out here? And a bunch of things came together that it just seemed to make sense. So it was actually two years ago now. Um, you know, a couple of days ago was Pentecost Sunday, and we started praying together, a group of about four or five of us, on the Monday after Pentecost Sunday. And we set up a little chapel in uh, the house that we uh, that we have in the Fernwood neighborhood uh, here in Victoria, and um, we really just started with the notion of let's just start praying together. Um, and so we did that. We um, you know we do that, and and we continue to do that every weekday morning at 7:45 a.m. Um, and and we as a community gather. There's usually between five and ten of us who will show up on any any given weekday morning, which isn't a, a lot of people, but it's at the same time is uh, for 7:45 isn't too bad, I guess. And so, so, um, so that was really how the community took shape. We we decided to take a year to just really um, listen and pray through what the um, what the what what we might be called to be in this context, and so we did that, and we took that same year to kind of get on the same page and shape ourselves as a community. So, within the new monastic movement, which we can talk about more if you, if you want to, because we are part of a wider movement. But within that movement, there's 12 marks uh, of a new monasticism, and they include things like caring for the plot of land that you've been given and praying together and being shaped along the lines of the old monastic ways of being shaped. And there's a number, there's, there's 12 of them, obviously. And so we spent the year really working through those as well as composing our rule of life. And after that first year, there were uh, five of us who decided that we would um, that we would take those promises initially and then Within that, we were in converse. We, we kind of started um, as a project within the Anglican Church, but most of our folks had had some United Church background or were active in the United Church, and so we we always felt a call to reconciliation. Probably that same impulse that 
that brought the United Church to form in 1925. Um, and so we, we, um, we, after that first year, started to talk with the United Church as well and became an ecumenical shared ministry of those two um, of those two denominations and and you know having said that some of our members come from beyond those or or from no tradition at all and so but we we felt one of the marks of a new monasticism is a humble submission to Christ's body the church which is perhaps one of the most difficult ones but we felt that having a connection to a tribe and, and in our case two tribes um, would be a would be a helpful thing in terms of accountability and support and and also for us to hopefully uh, in gentle ways to kind of be a way to speak to those traditions as as we all try and reimagine church together so um, so this this last year uh, and really just since the fall we've um, we've kind of picked up the pace a bit we took on nine new what we call novices that's what that's kind of the old monastic language for somebody who's discerning how they might be part of the community. And we've been, uh, I, I think, trying to sort of hone that process and, and figure, it, figure it out because it's, you know, we're doing everything new and from scratch. So we've done that, we've been doing that and, and uh, come October, any number of those folks can choose to connect to the community. Um, and they can, there's a couple of ways to do that. You can do that formally by taking the, the promises of prayer, presence, and simplicity or you can uh, become a companion of the community, we call it, where it's a little bit less structured, or you can just decide you want to be a friend of the community and come hang out. And really the process is designed so that there isn't a set end point of you must join the community, but this is how I feel called, or, or not called as the case may be, to relate to this community. Because we recognize that this way of being church and this way of being community isn't necessarily everybody's call we don't we don't want to sort of stand on a pedestal and say you know if everybody just kind of did this neo-monastic thing the church would be in a in better shape I, that, that's not the point of what we're doing it's really are we called to this particular expression in this particular place rooted in place and so that's uh so that's that so you know the last um since the fall we've been really trying to um move from our rootedness in prayer to a sense of what are those other two pieces, presence and simplicity. And obviously we've tried to do those from the beginning, but we um, we started a Sunday afternoon worship service called the Abbey. And that, um, that I think, is one way that, you know, we, we want to be present. We don't do that in our chapel. We do that kind of in the heart of the neighborhood. Um, but it's really an attempt to to kind of get out there and be a bit more present. And there's a number of ways that our members try and do that as well that isn't just a kind of come into us kind of model to get out there and, you know, do some gardening in the neighborhood or, or that kind of thing. Um, we also recognize that what we're doing we want to make sustainable. So we've we've been encouraged, particularly by the, the United Church, um, to look at doing some kind of micro industry. So as we've thought through that, uh, we've come up with the idea, and, and it's still very much embryonic and in its infancy, of perhaps looking again to the monastic traditions and looking at brewing beer. So kind of doing a nano brewery as a way of um, as a way of uh, maybe looking at at income, because we recognize even from the work that I've done in congregational ministry. Um, the patterns of giving and the ways people give are a lot different than they were even 20 years ago and the social conditions and the economic conditions in which people give. So is there something we can do that builds community that is ecologically sound um, and is is inspiring and, and maybe draws on the traditions? And so you know, we've been looking at Trappist beer. Trappist monks have been brewing beer in Europe for for centuries, and so we've we've uh, just over the last month or so been test brewing our first couple batches of uh, of Trappist beer and Trappist style beer, Abbey beer, and uh, so so th those are some of the things. And and again, you know, we're fairly new. Though we started praying two years ago, we're moving very slowly in what we're doing, and that's quite deliberate. You know, we don't want to come into the context in the neighborhood and with this kind of colonial mentality and 
sort of parade in and say, this is what we are and what we want to do. And, you know, we're, we're really listening. There's a phrase that, um, that keeps popping up in the movements that I'm part of, of, you know, coming alongside what God's already doing in the neighborhood. And that, that for me is, is really, I think, what we're doing and why we're doing it at the pace we're doing, because it's easy to, you know, we could put a lot of time and energy into trying to plant a church or, uh, you know, whatever whatever we might do. But again, we're just trying to do it at a pace that is sustainable and in a way that allows enough time for listening to the amazing stuff that's going on in, in our context already. Wow, it sounds like Certainly, in the last uh, two years, there's been a lot that's been uh, been going on. I, I, I'm tempted to, to ask more about uh, the uh, the Nano Brewery and uh, your experiences with that, but we'll we'll press pause on that. We'll get back to that. But I, I'm wondering about um, you know you started in prayer, and and that's been a, a central piece uh, you know to move the the community forward. I, I'm wondering what what you've learned in the process of. Uh, uh, of entering into that time, not just, you know, within your own community, but uh, what, what have you learned about the practice of, of prayer, especially within community, uh, that uh, perhaps you can you can share with us? Yeah, that's an, that's an amazing question, Dave. I think what I would say is that, you know, a lot of the movement, you know, part of my background is as a social justice activist for many years of my life, kind of university and beyond, and I found um, that important work um, needed to be uh, sustained on spiritual practices. And if it wasn't, um, things like terrible things like burnout or acting out or whatever would happen. And and so for me, um, this incarnation of community was very deliberately started. Um, as leaders, we, we really said rooting it in prayer is, is important, and 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 I think actually countercultural as well. Um, to actually gather regularly for communal prayer is a huge thing. Um, for us, uh, I I think that is why two years on, we're still sustaining ourselves and, and growing and and excited. The um, you know. The new monastic movements have a number of different ways that they've approached this, and particularly in the U.S., they're quite activist, and they they have um, they they certainly have a prayer life, but you know they've been more they've emphasized more the kind of get out there, and and sometimes I, I wish we had more of that energy, um, but again I you know for us where we're at we just felt like praying praying is an important starting point and, and a continuing rooting point for us. Um, I was thinking about it yesterday, actually, that, you know, if, if I add up half an hour every every morning, five days a week, plus the other, you know, some, we do some evenings or we have other gatherings and things like that, you know, we're kind of averaging probably two two to three hours a week of, of common prayer together. Um, and one of the really powerful things that has happened, perhaps the most vis- 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 visibly powerful thing, is we decided both um, on our fence to put prayer mailboxes um, around at, at our house, and we also, in our offering plate, rather than just collecting um, money on our Sunday worship, uh, we don't get much of that actually, <laughs> but we do get a huge pile of prayer requests that people put in there. So. You know, this morning at morning prayer, we had about eight or ten little pieces of paper that had either come in through our mailbox or had come in uh, in the offering plate on on Sunday. Um, And that has been, I think, for me, the greatest honor and and one of the most beautiful things. We'll get notes from people that say, I don't deserve to write this note because I don't even believe in your God, but I'm, I'm... desperate right now or I'm really struggling right now or whatever we get we get a number of those that you know people who may have no connection with us and you know they'll they'll, they'll write I, I walk by every morning and see you folks in there praying together and you know my mom is sick or whatever the whatever the prayer might be um, so it's it's um, 
that's been really powerful. And I think that in many ways, the prayer life is the glue of the community. The prayer life is what um, is what really shapes us and sustains us. It means that our days begin, you know, in our in our prayer, we we follow um, a fairly monastic pattern of prayer, which includes um, a space for gratitude, a space for confession, a psalm. We tend to chant our psalms, um, a reading, which most of the time is from the Gospels, and then a time of silence, a time of sharing, and then um, and then a time for just kind of open prayer for all these things, whatever we may feel called to prayer, pray for. And I think that beginning our day rooted in our sacred story, in, in our texts, helps shape the day um, in, into God's time rather than into our time and into God's orientation rather than our orientation. So, you know, that, that I think for me is one of the most powerful things about the prayer life of the community. And there's a bit of a kind of liberation theology-based community thing of it, it, it's certainly transcendent, but we also sit in a circle and we hear what God's saying to other people. We have that time to respond and say, oh, I'm hearing... You know, the gospel today is calling calling me or maybe calling us to get, get out there or maybe it's calling us to be still and be quiet. Or, you know, whatever the call might be on that particular day. And again, I think that just really helps shape us as a community. I'm I'm interested. Uh, you know, certainly that's uh, there's a lot of a lot of powerful stuff uh, within what you just shared there. I, I I'm wondering about community. We talk about community a lot in 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 the church. It seems to be something that's important uh, within the Emmaus uh, community. It being a community in of itself, but one that is uh, concerned about the wider neighborhood. Um, um, what can you share with us? What have you learned about community over the past two years? Well. My experience, you know, community is, is hard work, and the um, there can be a danger, I think, you know, when you talk about presence, there can be a danger of getting too focused on the community. I mean, it'd be easy for us to just spend all our time together. Um, you know, we just, again, we just came through Pentecost, and we hear in Acts 2 of the community coming together, and, and, and I think that's a bit of a, a pivotal uh, verse for us because, you know, they prayed together daily, they shared meals together, but what's interesting there is that they are sent out from there, and they are, um, they are you know, they share deeply, and then they're, they're kind of sent out to engage the context, and, and so for us... Um, I'm not sure, you know, if I'm honest about it, I'm not sure we're there yet. We're still, you know, really a year in of taking, uh, not even a year in of taking our first vows as community members, the first five of us. We're not, um, we're still listening a lot. And so I guess that's, if there's a learning in the presence piece, it's to be patient because there's a part of me that's like, you know, oh, I want to, I want to get the, brewery going and get the people in the neighborhood and, oh, let's build a cob house so we can have another space of hospitality and let's get involved in the neighborhood permaculture garden and let's do this partnership with this arts group. And all of those seeds are there, but they're very much seeds. I don't think they're even in the ground yet. And, you know, the activist doer in me, you know, really kind of is like, let's get this going at the same time, um, you know, I keep hearing a, a call, and I think we as a community keep hearing a call to not neglect that presence piece, but to also um, let it happen in an organic way rather than trying to force it. So so that that is, I think, what we're learning. We're learning to listen. We're trying to learn to listen. Um, and... Right now, for me, a lot of that is just relationships. It's hearing stories of people in the neighborhood, many of whom have been really hurt by the Christian tradition in some way or another. Um, you know, I'll, I'll, a number of times in the past months, people have said, you know, you're, you're a minister. Um, you're not like the kind of minister that I'd expect to meet. 
and when I kind of press about that, they'll say, well, you don't talk in this weird way that I don't understand, and you do, you're like a normal person. And I'm like, is that a good thing? And it, it tends to be a good thing. I, I think people just have this perception that I should be, or, or you know, we as people in community or as people living our baptismal faith, you know, that we should be jerks or we should, you know, we should be uh, trying to proselytize them or, you know, whatever the, whatever the people's perception might be. And um, I think that uh, what I'm learning is to just listen to the stories of like, you know, I had this interest in the Christian church when I was six years old, but then my friend told me that, you know, I was going to spend eternity in hell and I, you know, I haven't gone back. I hear this kind of thing time and time again, and it grieves me. <laughs> yeah. But it, it, it's, it's exciting to have enough trust that people will say, you know, you're, we, we trust you, and to, to share this story. And so for me, presence right now, I guess if I'm to encapsulate it, is about trust building. It's really about trying to. Um, trying to build trust in the neighborhood because really, you know, one of the reasons why we chose the Fernwood neighborhood where we are is because most of the Christian churches have left. You know, the street we live on is the former is the site of the former Belfair United. We're on we're on um Belfair Avenue and sorry, Bel- Belmont Avenue. Belmont okay. United yeah. um is is yeah, let me start that again. So the street that we live on is is the site of the former Belmont uh, United Church, the Anglican Church um, to the north of us shut down about seven or eight years ago and sold and and they put up houses. Um, the Baptist Church left decades ago. There's a, there's a lot of abandoned church buildings, but particularly the mainstream or mainline Protestant churches have left the neighborhood. And so for us, um, there isn't much of a witness to that way of being Christian. And we, I guess one of the questions is, does intentional community, can intentional community, can monastic community be a countercultural witness in a neighborhood where most of the, most of the Christian presence, if not all of it, for, in a certain direction? If I look north from us, there's practically, you know, no Christian presence left, whereas there was at one point Lutheran, Presbyterian, United, Anglican, and Baptist all gone. So, wow. you know, that's that's a specific BC thing, but I don't think the rest of Canada is that far behind. Yeah, yeah, certainly a lot of lot of communities where uh, where we're seeing, you know, not just uh, United Churches, but uh, you know, Anglicans, many of the the mainline churches out there, you know, closing down. And I, I think in the midst of that, there's certainly a lot of anxiety from from those that are a part of the established uh, church. And, and certainly your story uh, gives us a lot of hope. Um, but I, I'm wondering, you know, we're, we're, we're clamoring in the church for, for new ideas, new ways of, of being. Um, and yet here you, you've discovered uh, kind of an ancient way uh, of being. And uh, I'm wondering how that might inform us moving forward. Uh, certainly, there are those out there that may want to start their own, uh, you know, similar, um, you know, neo-monastic community. Uh, but but even beyond that, I'm sure that there are things that uh, that you can teach us, teach others that that are maybe not prepared for that. Yeah, you know, I I think that what's what I'll sometimes have lead, denominational leaders come and say, you know, this is this is a great thing, this is a great template. You know, there may be some truth in that, but I, I, I always like to push back a little bit and and say, you know, we have within our traditions, um, we have within our traditions everything that's there that we need. And in many cases, you know, when I, when I look at the United Church side of things, and you know, as you know, we're a shared United and Anglican Church ministry. If, if I look at Methodism, for example, and I could look equally at Presbyterianism or Congregationalism or or whatever, but if I look at Methodism and look at Wesley and his practices of prayer and um, what ensued in his time in, in the sort of primal era of Methodism. I think this is this is kind of 
at least from the United Church side of where we are, this is kind of the call to, this is the call. I mean, Wesley was into presence. He got into the streets. That's what that's what annoyed the Anglican Church. It's like, you, know, you can't you can't do tent meetings outside of parish churches. And and it, you know, eventually all these movements kind of fossilize and become their own things. I, I get that, but I I think. I think that if if we look into our history, for us it's a strong emphasis on the monastic history because it's got this beautiful contemplative tradition. It's got um, it's got a beautiful tradition of learning. It's got a beautiful tradition of having a rhythm of prayer. And so for us, you know that that's really exciting. You know, Dave, there's um there's a quote. I think it's a Church of England bishop who said it. I can't remember who said it, but. He said that to talk about the death of the church is bad theology, um, and I think he's right. I think if if the church is the body of Christ, um, then then it's it's going to live, <laughs> it's hmm. going to survive. I think the forms that we see, and I think Christendom, the Christendom forms, and I'm not anti-Christendom by the way. I mean, I think the beauty of the buildings, the structures, the liturgies, the um, the music, so much of Christendom isn't to be dismissed. But I do think if we want to cling to Christendom forms in a post-Christendom world, um, we're in trouble. You know, the, the notion that people will come to us because every banker in town goes to the United or the Anglican Church or w- whatever the cultural assumptions might have been 40, 50, 100 years ago, they ain't there anymore. So for us, it really is um, it really is looking back. Sometimes that's looking back to the first century. Sometimes that's looking back to the 12th century. Sometimes it's the 17th or the 18th century. I mean, you know, I, the Holy Spirit hasn't stopped working, even at times where it's seemed pretty pretty vulnerable and pretty fragile. So for me, the, um, you know, I, I just, I always sort of, when, when, when there is angst within the denominational structures, I I always like to offer an encouragement that, you know, yeah, the denomination might sink even, but the impulse that started the denomination, whether it's that call to unity that brought together the United Church, whether it's, uh, you know, whether it's the Methodist peace and that revival that, you know, not only called for personal holiness, but, you know, shook the foundations of the empire and arguably, you know, at least helped take down slavery in the British Empire, you know, those those impulses are alive and well in the heart of the church, and so I'm not particularly worried. It was interesting, you know. We had our our chapel consecrated as a as an actual chapel, our house chapel, and as we were looking for a liturgy to do that, um, we couldn't find one. You know, we found lots of ways to consecrate a chapel or a cathedral or a congregational church or a parish church, and there was a historian who attended, and he said. Isn't that interesting? This is how we started, you know, gathering in houses and kind of making the space holy, and we've forgotten how to do that. We don't have a liturgy even to do it. So sometimes we have to even reinvent it. I think we have to kind of, you know, we, we kind of piece together a bunch of little liturgies to be like, how, how do you actually bless a house chapel? And so, you know, I... I I think that's I think it's an exciting place to be. People can be despondent, but I actually think for for me personally, I think the fall of Christendom and I don't know if it's fallen or if it, if we're in late Christendom or whatever and you talk to the philosophers or the social theorists, but but I think the place we are is exciting because people are coming because they're interested in in Jesus. They're interested in connection with the living God, with the triune God. And they're not interested because it's a you know like I always say there's way better things to do on a Sunday morning or a Sunday afternoon right. than than come into a box and you know sing hmm. hymns half-heartedly or whatever, or hear a message that may or may not be life-changing. Um, but we are doing it because and and we are committed to the practice of it because it, it is that two-way connects us with God and connects us with others and so. I, I'm excited, you know, that, that the people who come now, the people who show up, though they may be a, a third or a tenth of what they were a hundred years ago, I think it, it's that third or tenth who really want to be there and who really 
called into that life of of prayer and that life of being sent out to try and you know live the kingdom infused and empowered by the Holy Spirit to do that. So it's, for me, this is the best time to be church. But yeah, like you say, reaching into the the traditions, um, I think is is a really helpful piece at this time because. I don't think any program or any, you know, I, I, that's why I resist even calling us a program because, I, you know, we're just trying to sort of look at what's what's happened before and what worked and what worked in pre-modernity, what worked in, you know, because that's kind of, we're, I think we're almost back there. I think we're almost back to pre-modern times. Like, what happened when they broke bread and drank wine together and why should we be doing that and how did they do it and... Yeah, those are some of the questions that I ask. Well, and it, it's interesting you talk about uh, you know this you know uh, notion of talking about the the death of the church. You, you've certainly uh, selected the right image uh, in naming your community the Emmaus uh, community. Um, you know what went into that? Obviously, there's some great resurrection uh, imagery in there, and uh, you know there's a relational aspect uh, to that, a notion of, of breaking bread uh, with one another, and uh, you know glimpses of uh, you know, Christ's uh, face within the midst of uh, of that. Uh, tell me about uh, the choice uh, to name it the Emmaus community. Yeah, you know, it it um, it, uh, it seemed like the perfect image. I, I I do have to put in a bit of a disclaimer, though. Um, we thought our there was kind of a um, a sense the community was in, initially called Community of of the Reconciliation, and we found that was a bit too funky and awkward, but that, that notion of reconciliation was really important to us, which is part of why we became a shared ministry even. But, um, you know, funny enough, <laughs> uh, we thought, oh, Emmaus will be simpler. That was kind of one thing. As we've done it, though, we recognize that most people outside of the Christian tradition, and in fact many within it, don't know how the heck to pronounce it. So, you know, I'll have the internet person call up and say, you know, is this a mouse community? <laughs> um, so, you know, we, we, no matter what we do, we're kind of in this world where people don't know the, the terms anymore. It, it's a difficult uh, it's a difficult thing. But, you know, more seriously and, and theologically, that notion of being on a path together, being a little bit despondent, you know, that story, the, those those two people are coming back from the crucifixion and they're like, what the heck, where's all our hope? Hmm. Um, and then Jesus coming alongside them, uh, you know, that that image of being walking along the way with Jesus, whether we know it or not, um, I think is an is a extremely powerful one. Um, and then as the story, as the story moves on, you know, the rootedness in Scripture, him, make, him opening the this sort of uh, sense of truth and wonder through through the scripture. Again, I talked about us praying through scripture, um, and of course eating together. I mean, you can't get a better image for an intentional community uh, than eating together. And and so him making himself known in the breaking of the bread, that pivotal moment. And I think whether or not there's an explicit uh, religious or Christian notion to it, when we we had an open meal last week in the park, and we had this amazing, diverse mix of people, probably half of whom were Christian, would identify as Christian in some way, just kind of coming out. And, and for me, that that's a real sign or a symbol of the kingdom when that happens, of the reign of God. Um, so it just, it, you know, there's all these touchstones in this story of being on a path of, of, of the centrality of, of Christ within that path of, of the bread, of eating together, and, and even them offering Jesus hospitality. You know, most of the Christian traditions and the monastic traditions have at their heart this notion of welcoming Christ as as the outsider or the stranger. And so in that one, Christ says, can I, can I stay with you tonight? And they open, their, they open their doors. So, you know, any one of those pieces could be a one-hour <laughs> or ten-hour discussion, but, you know, hospitality, eating food, praying together, scripture, and being on a pilgrimage. I mean, it's ultimately a pilgrimage, and we love that pilgrimage idea as well. So there's, that's the, <laughs> that, that I think is why the story spoke to me anyways.
That's great. Thanks for for sharing that. So I I have to ask about the uh, the Nano Brewery. How are things going along with uh, with that uh, piece of uh, the Amaze community? It, you know, it, it's slow. It's um, you know, all of us in the community work elsewhere, <laughs> and so the the idea of starting a micro enterprise is is a, it's a tough one because that's that's a you know any of the elements that we do. Um, could be in themselves a full-time commitment if we wanted them to happen quickly and and sort of expediently. But um, it's been fun, and, and what I really like about the idea of the nano brewery is the imagination it captures with people. You know, you don't to get somebody to come to morning prayer or to a Sunday afternoon communion service, you have to have a certain amount of buy-in. Um, and you have to have a certain kind of lifestyle as well. I mean, you know, our, there's a lot of you know, there's a lot of people who can't come to morning prayer because they're getting their kids out the door to school, or they're they have to be at work at eight o'clock, or whatever the case may be. But brewing beer or doing some other kind of creative way of um, of creating something. I mean, I, again, it's this act of creation. It, it's just such an exciting and interesting thing uh, to do. So, you know, like I say, we've just, we're just starting test brews. We have 100 plus bottles kind of fermenting in the, in the basement right now as we speak. And we've been working on a specific kind of, uh, you know, drawing on that sort of the Belgian, uh, beer taste, which is very different than what we usually have in the West Coast here. It's, a, it's right. not a very hoppy, and it's a sweeter and richer and, and higher alcohol kind of beer generally. So we're, you know, we're we're just, uh, again, it's, it's a very slow thing, but we have all this interest from people to actually build something. And, and um, you know, the, the potential, we have a partnership, we have a partnership, uh, an internship partnership with a uh, urban organic farm and they're like we could grow hops for you and you know there's a an old well in the neighborhood that once a month people get together and draw water from and this is the well that once served two breweries in the 19th century in the neighborhood so we kind of wow. there's a lot of fun potential and you know whether we do beer time instead of coffee time at the end of our sunday worship in <laughs> five years time or whatever you know whatever who knows how it'll go it, it may be a very small thing but um, there, it, it seems to invoke the imagination, and I think if if we as church can can do that, or if the Holy Spirit can invoke imagination um, through something as simple as brewing beer, and we, you know we've also been doing kombucha tea and talking about that. We, you know how it'll settle, we don't know. We're still very much just playing around with it, but it's. Um, we're excited about the potential, and hopefully, in about a month's time, we'll have a hundred bottles and to to taste and see. Well, let's go back to the drawing board, and we need to, you know. And once we get going, though, I think we hope to brew one or two days a week, so we could make, you know, even with a very small setup, we could be pumping out four or five hundred bottles of beer a month. But we have a lot of work to do in terms of licensing, and you know, you have to, once you get beyond testing, you you, you hit the uh, the bureaucracy. So we're yeah. we're working with people as well to sort of figure out how to do that well and do it safely and do it legally. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I look forward to it at some point uh, when when you're further along the process, uh, joining you for for perhaps uh, worship and followed by uh, beer time afterwards. Maybe <laughs> it'd be great to uh, to join you for that. One way to build the church, anyways, is to have beer time. I think so exactly, be. exactly. Yeah, we love coffee, but we love beer as well. So. Well, thanks so much, uh, Rob. I really appreciate you. You've shared uh, just an incredible amount of wisdom uh, with us. Uh, certainly, uh, some important pieces on on prayer, on on, on presence, on simplicity, and uh, certainly wish you uh, all all the best uh, as uh, things move forward with the Emmaus community. And we'll look forward to to hearing how the story uh, continues there. But I think you're teaching us a lot about uh, about resurrection and uh, and about new life uh, in the church and uh, the importance of uh, 
uh, of taking things slowly, the importance of listening and uh, and being rooted uh, within a community there. So uh, regardless of whether, uh, you know, people listening are interested in, in joining uh, with Emmaus or, in, or beginning their own uh, new monastic uh, community there, uh, I think there's a lot that we can learn from you. So I certainly appreciate uh, your time with us today. Well, I appreciate uh, I appreciate it as well, and yeah, thank you. We're all in this. I, I always say this: we're all in this together, you know. And so, the ways of church may look different on the uh, on the surface. The ways of being church or reimagining church may look different, but you know, we're all we're all I think in this boat. I think that's the ancient image of the of the church, right? Being in this boat together, and so. It's um it's exciting. It's exciting times and uh yeah, please do come out and have a have a beverage and uh we'd love to see you and uh yeah, thanks so much, Dave. Thanks, Rob. So great conversation with uh, with Rob there, and we appreciate uh, him being on the podcast this week. There's so many things uh, out of that conversation that we could talk about, uh, but uh, just some initial reactions uh, to it. Isaac, any thoughts? Yeah, you know, one of the things that I really liked uh, there sort of towards the end that he was talking about in terms of the nanobrewery experience is this whole idea that they have these 100-plus bottles fermenting in the basement, because I think that's kind of a beautiful metaphor for what they're doing. They're kind of getting into these different rhythms of being a community of faith, allowing this time just to go slowly for things to ferment in order to uh, get that sudsy goodness that will be uh, present later. And uh, I don't know, I I think it'd be worthwhile just, uh, you know, talking a bit about how we kind of get into rhythms in our own lives and in our lives of faith. I love thinking about a good faith being like a, a sudsy goodness, I, uh, and and this this notion they're getting across to us about live simply really comes across to me when I think about enjoying a simple beer with friends. There, there's something I think we you don't often hear Sunday morning us talking about that being a holy experience, but there's an intense sense of release and belonging that that happens when you engage in such intimate friendship and and community and sense of belonging. And as somebody who's who's done some home brewing before, it, it is really when you think about just that image of you know the fermentation process. There's a lot of patience required there, and and uh, if if ever anybody out there has, has done any brewing, they'll know that the fact that you know there are times where you get it wrong, and uh, and the chemists, you know, like I mean, you've got you know either not enough hops or, or too much or or you know like it, the the environmental. There's so many things that factor in, but sometimes you get it right. And, and I think that, you know, when it comes to ministry and, and church, there's, it, that's a good metaphor as well. You know, that there are times where, where things just, you, you hit a home run uh, with that, that brew that you've made. And there are other times that just, you know, environmental factors or, or other things, a, a slight mistake might lead to something. But it's a matter of just continuing to try and try and try again and make notes on, on what, uh, what you can change in the future. Yeah. And, you know, even thinking about the different ingredients that go into the the right concoction, I think that it's really neat in terms of what they're talking about, how they brought together some of the Anglican tradition and the United tradition, and even the way that he talks about uh, bringing things from other centuries into how we live uh, as, as new communities of faith. I know for myself, like, even though I'm kind of born and bred United Church, my dad's United Church minister, my grandpa was as a United Church minister, I know for myself, I don't know if I would have gone into ministry if I hadn't had influence from um, different people who were spiritual directors from uh, the Catholic tradition and from the Anglican tradition, experiences from other denominations. And even though I love my United Church and I love um, being a part of this inclusive environment and feel like this is where my home is, I think that it's really important for us to be able to bring in um, different uh, different traditions so that we can begin to develop that rhythm and and that's present maybe in some other denominations like Catholicism where you know they have daily prayer and, and and different rhythms in the monastic tradition that I think we can learn from a lot so I really appreciated that in terms of what they were talking about about that mix 
I'm thinking about the rhythm of life, and uh, and obviously, you know, Rob talks about the fact that you know this this isn't for everyone, and I so appreciate that. You know that there is there's a humbleness to this community of faith, and and, and to Rob in particular, uh, of saying we realize that this isn't for everyone, that the world isn't going to be made better when uh, you know if everybody just followed the same pattern. But there is something about following a, a rhythm of life. Uh, you know, and not just on a, on a personal level, but on, on, a, on a, you know, a community level, you know, being a part of a community of faith and, and having a rhythm of life. I, I don't think that there's a community of faith out there that would say, well, we don't have a rhythm. You know, that's something that we share in common with a, a lot of these, you know, monastic orders and, and, and with this new monastic uh, movement there. So uh, let's maybe talk about rhythm of life. What are the things that, that are important for you, you know, as it relates to that, that rhythm of life? Uh, that may differ from, you know, this, this world of ours that follows a particular rhythm. It, it makes me think perhaps, perhaps this is for more people than, than we think. You often hear about congregation members, co-workers, everyone making time to go off to the cottage. And, and I think the cottage has become this holy place where people naturally experience the rhythm of life. They're away from... The, the busyness and all the things that just seem to build up and, and bog us down. And, and uh, people go to the cottage, they, they make time to read. They make time to enjoy nature. They make time to, to live simply, as, as, as we hear Rob talking about. And, and uh, I, I wonder if he's being humble there when he says it's not for everyone, when, when so often we, we hear people yearning for this and then experiencing it and, and experiencing a sense of euphoria when they do experience it. But let's label it and call it what it is and, and say that it's been a part of our faith tradition for, for some time. You know, I think for me, like, I really identified with uh, him talking about their, their rhythms of prayer in the life of the community. And I think for myself, you know, having some time to pray in the morning and in the evening, it, it was a long um, gestational period or fermentation per- period for me to get to that point. And I think that part of it was I realized over the years that often I really suck at praying uh, and I'm really distracted and just felt like nothing was really going on or going down and then I had just had this one experience with a spiritual director who said you know what just youth kind of being there and being with God God's cool with that God understands and you're making that time and devoting that time and so even if you are distracted or if you're uh, feeling like not a whole lot is going on that's okay and I don't know just that permission to be not that great at it really helped me and I really identified with him saying that you know having that rhythm in his life allowed him to avoid things like burnout or kind of being reactionary in terms of uh, his relationships with other people in, in faith communities. I really thought that was spot on. And the thing that I really love about that is that you know, when, when Rob talks about beginning in prayer, that that's how their community started, um, he talks about listening and the importance of that that process of of listening uh, that really you know if if we focus on prayer and look at it as 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 something that is a spiritual practice of of listening there's so many implications there that take it beyond just that you know i think often people think that prayer is just okay you know will we talk to god and and sort of bring our thanksgiving to god and that you know but i think that if if we're going to be you know, sort of honest about, you know, what, what our prayer life should be. It, it should be, you know, there should be uh, listening involved in that. It should be a matter of not just listening, but, you know, how do we listen for, for God speaking within our world? And the way that we do that is, is being attentive to, to others. Um, I loved how he talked about, you know, this idea that, you know, they're very focused on the idea of being rooted in place. Uh, and uh, he, he said something about, uh, you know, coming alongside what, what God's already doing in the neighborhood. And that's something for me in the last uh, few years that I've really tried to be attentive to is, is how am I plugging into the wider neighborhood, into the wider community in order that, not, not in order that I might uh, sort of like, you know, bless them with my presence, but how they might be a blessing to me and, and, and that I may be attentive to and listening for what God's doing in the lives of others who may not be present on Sunday morning in my own context. And so 
things like uh, coaching soccer, you know, is something that I've committed to over the last uh, few years here. And it's been such a such a rich blessing. Uh, people know who I am and, and, and what I do generally uh, in that uh, in that world there. But it, it, it's that just practice of listening for others and being attentive to uh, to what's happening beyond the walls of, of the institutional walls of the church is such an important thing. So I really appreciated that from him because I think that if we're going to transform our communities, if we're going to really speak about a rhythm of life, I think it needs to begin with a process of, you know, a spiritual practice of listening, you know, which is, which is connected to prayer. Yeah. Yeah, Dave. They, in in our culture today, there seems to be a hidden message, and maybe it's not so hidden to to not talk about faith. You know, don't talk about it at work. Don't don't talk about it in the classroom. And and um, and and our culture is uh, it is what it is. And and I think sometimes as as faith leaders, we we shy away ourselves from just uh, from letting people know who we are, what we do. Um, where, whereas what we're hearing from Rob here is a real sense of accountability, a, 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 that natural rhythm of saying who you are, not hiding who you are and, and letting it come out naturally and, and being who you are naturally. It's a powerful message and, and we're guilty of it as faith leaders that, that we hide away too. We're afraid we might offend someone when, when, when really, what is there to fear about when you, when you peel it all away? Yeah, I thought it was cool even when we just came in here and uh, we were talking up at the cache and Doug, you mentioned that we were doing a faith-based podcast and I almost had this moment where I was feeling a bit panicky, uh, like what would they say? And they said, oh, can we retweet you guys in terms of uh, some of the stuff that you're doing and uh, you, you guys being here? I think that there's maybe more of an openness to um, to what kind of God is doing in the world than maybe we expect. And I think too, like this whole idea of um, that, that Robin's up talking about, like, God's going to do God's thing, right? So maybe we don't need to worry about it so much in terms of what people are thinking about us because, um, uh, you know, this whole thing of the death of the church or the decline of the church, like, God's, if, if the church is Christ's body, it's going to be okay. Like, and, and that kind of allows us to have that sense of self-assurance to, to maybe be who we are. You know, it, it's interesting to think about uh, just you know, rhythm of life and, and uh, you talking about, you know, coming in here and, and you know, it, it makes me think about the reality that the anxiety in the church today has a lot to do with a, a disruption in what has been sort of that typical rhythm, you know, within our culture. Uh, and, and when I say that, I mean that, you know, the, tip of, the rhythm of life that I think a lot of our parishioners, a lot of people in the church got used to was this rhythm of, oh, our... You know, businesses close down on Sundays, um, uh, clubs and, and teams don't play, you know, everything, we set aside everything on Sunday mornings. And so we got used to that rhythm of life, of, of the, the culture saying we value that and we're going to make sure that we uh, uh, sort of arrange our schedule around that. Now that that's been disrupted, we're kind of forced to find new, a new rhythm. And that's where I think a lot of the struggle and the anxiety is around is when, whenever, you know, rhythm is disrupted and you're having to find a new rhythm of life, uh, it's difficult. You want to go back to the old one. We want to sort of continue to say, well, you know, we're going to set aside, we're going to resist. And, and there's something countercultural within that, which I think is great. And I, I, I respect people who've made that decision that on Sunday mornings or Sunday during the day, that's going to, sa- going to be a Sabbath day for them. But... I think that there's a new rhythm that we can find, and part of the rhythm is just saying, how can we have the church extend out in the community? And and one way to do that is to be authentically ourselves and engage people in conversation, like you know, arriving at a cafe to record a podcast and, and just being honest about who we are in a way that we can then engage in, in a wider conversation and find a new pattern that's connected to the wider community. I mean, I'm not sure where I'm going with that, but I think that maybe this a part of this new rhythm that we we need to find in the church is a rhythm that takes us beyond the walls of the church um, that says, yeah, how can we um, sort of practice being a good neighbor? How can we practice uh, loving and extending God's grace and, and, and God's goodness and, and showing joy? Um, there, there's value in stepping outside the walls of the church to do that. And so isn't it great that actually we, we, we do find ourselves in, in the rhythm that we got used to uh, being in this place of disruption where we're forced to find something new because I think that we're being blessed by this new rhythm. I, also, I, th- I think what I'm hearing you say is practice engaging in rest, 
practice and engaging in Sabbath once again and, and the natural beauty that, that it blesses you with. I, I heard a Thomas Merton quote once that talked about how God blesses your work through rest. And I, it makes me think of in a rural context and in, in the rural church, uh, an older generation will often say to me, we would just stop working. You know, we, we even if there were bales of hay outside and it's and it started raining outside, you know, in today's day and age, people would say, get those in, keep them dry, panic, panic. They said, you know, our dads used to say, our moms used to say, well, leave it be. It'll dry up. It'll get done. There was just a, a natural sense of of faith that that things would get done. It's OK to rest. It's OK to have all things in, in its time. Yeah, and you know, even like speaking of being natural and this whole idea of rest, like I used to live in the Myland uh, neighborhood of Montreal, which was like really a lot of uh, Hasidic Jewish people who were living yeah, in that community, and they were really big into Sabbath. They wouldn't drive around. They wouldn't. Uh, um, there are all kinds of things that they wouldn't do during the day, but it didn't have this feeling of being super severe because I think sometimes within the Christian tradition, we've had uh, moments in our tradition where it has been really severe, but it was really like a time for enjoyment. Kids would be outside playing. Um, I know I talked with one of the guys and he was saying, we always make sure to have sex on the Sabbath. Like that was a big part of the day of rest. So enjoying being natural and uh, God's rhythms in, yeah, a very particular and uh, enjoying way. And I think that that's important for us to think about is how are we enjoying this rest that God has created? Well, there you have it. There's uh, an additional thing that uh, we can extend out as we talk about this new rhythm of of life. Uh, Yeah. Thank you for that blessing, Isaac. Thank you, Isaac. I'm speechless. I'm speechless. (laughs) The other thing I was thinking about, too, is is that we think about this countercultural you know, idea, because I think that there's a lot, uh, whether it's looking at, you know, uh, traditional uh, monasticism or new monasticism, uh, you can't help but look at it and say that that there's an effort being made to sort of push against, you know, the way that our culture is sort of pushing us. And in particular, not everything, but, you know, those things that sort of guide us away from, you know, moving towards consumerism and, and being defined uh, mainly as a consumer and not someone who's, uh, you know, I mean, we in our creed, we talk about, you know, the, the idea that God is has created and is creating. And I think that that creation comes through us. And, and I think that there's something happening within our world as it relates to, you know, pushing people more away from, you know, being creators, uh, co-creators with God and moving towards consuming. And there's an ecological, you know, sort of their implications uh, about that from an environmental standpoint and things as well. But um, this idea of being countercultural, I think, is important. And how do we how do we do that? How do we find a rhythm that is uh, counter to what, you know, those sort of negative things that are happening in our culture Uh, I think in particular about, uh, you know, my time working on the eastern seaboard in the United States and how many moments I I found myself in a situation where here I am working in a church that's just sort of like, in some ways, like any other sort of corporate, you know, uh, American entity. And, uh, you know, it wasn't every moment, but there were many moments where I felt like, you know, we've kind of just decided to sort of follow that same pattern. Uh, And... uh, and that's where we, we do need to ask those questions. Uh, and so this idea of slowing down, this idea of, of not making our culture a consumer culture and, and making religion into a culture or into uh, you know, something that's just consumed by individuals, I think is important as well. Um, talk about that idea of being uh, countercultural. Yeah, right away it makes me think of, um, makes me think of, I think of punk music. I think of gangster hip hop music and 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 often I think a, a need within our own lives of faith to be counterculture and speak against the the voices of influence that are trying to tell us to work harder and and live into something that doesn't feel natural and 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 uh, keep a pace that doesn't seem natural and and doesn't seem to be in line with how we feel inside and and often when, when i reflect on punk music there's there's a voice a voice of youth that get that almost gets overly angry and, and uh i think paul says get angry just don't sin how can we use our faith 
to to use that energy within us that says no these messages are not true that culture is throwing at us live a different way that's more in line with how we feel called to to live and be and and influence the good within our own culture yeah and you know you mentioned you know punk rock gangster rap there's something there there's an authenticity Mm -hmm. that you'll find in there that you don't find you know like in 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 maybe more mainstream versions of uh, of you know hip-hop music or or rock music you know there's a level of authenticity there that speaks to the truths of of what's going on in the world i'll never forget you know hearing nwa you know when i was at you know in high school years ago and here are these guys you know speaking about you know, life in a part of the world, you know, mm-hmm. in Compton, uh, that I just, I couldn't connect with, but it, it spoke to a truth about this world that I needed to be open to. And, and so uh, I think that we need to be thankful for that authenticity and, and being countercultural, I think often is, is just, you know, our culture sometimes wants us to be fake, wants us to just sort of get in line and, and how's your day going? Great, fine. And just move on from there. But, you know, being a part of a faith community, you know, the way that we can be countercultural is to, is to move towards authenticity. Well, that's great. I think we'll, we'll end it there. And uh, we certainly want to thank, uh, thank Rob Crosby Shearer for, uh, for joining us uh, for this episode here and, and wish uh, the Emmaus community all the best. And we'll look forward to, to hearing not only how things go with their nano brewery, uh, but how things uh, progress with their community of faith and, uh, and certainly send all our best to, to them. Uh, we thank you for listening to the Illuminate Faith podcast there and encourage you to uh, to follow us on Twitter at Illuminate Faith with the number eight in between there uh, and like us on Facebook. And uh, uh, we look forward to, uh, to you joining us uh, next week for the, the next episode of the Illuminate Faith. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thanks. <laughs>